My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 149, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 2 Kings 8, Hosea 8 through 10, and Psalm 108. 2 Kings 8. Now Elisha had said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to appeal to the king for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, Tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, This is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Haziel, Take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, Will I recover from this illness? Haziel went to meet Elisha, taking with him as a gift 40 camel loads, all of the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadid, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me that he will, in fact, die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Haziel was embarrassed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Haziel. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Haziel said, How could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Haziel left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, What did Elisha say to you? Haziel replied, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Haziel succeeded him as king. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zair with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. 
His army, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. Libna revolted at the same time. As for the other servants of Jehoram's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the kings of Judah? Jehoram rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. In the twelfth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Ataliah, a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He followed the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. Ahaziah went with Joram, son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. The Arameans wounded Joram, so King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramoth in his battle with Haziel, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jeram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. Hosea 8 Put the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Samaria, throw out your calf idol. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a metalwork, has made on it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Their stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations, like something no one wants. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey and wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten their maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire on their cities. That will consume their fortresses. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out wine offering to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. What will you do on the day of your appointed festivals, on the feast days of the Lord? Even if they escape from destruction, Egypt will gather them and Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars and thorns will overrun their tents. The day of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool. 
the inspired person, a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim. Yet snares await him on all his paths, and hostility in the house of his God. They have sunk deep into corruption, as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they rear children, I will bereave them of every one. Woe to them when I turn away from them. I have seen Ephraim like Tyre, planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. Give them, Lord, what will you give them? Give them wombs that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. This heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altar and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth Aven. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests, those who have rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorn and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evil doers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer so that loves to thresh. So I will put a yoke on their fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow and Jacob must break up the ground. So righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your own many warriors, the roar of battle will rise against your people, so that all your fortresses will be devastated. A shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle. When mothers were dashed to the ground with their children, so will it happen to you, Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. Psalm 108 My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love. 
higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. On Edom, I toss my sandals. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Adam? It is not you. God, you have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Okay, let's back up and remember the context of the story happening in 1 Kings and Hosea. Israel became a united nation through King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And then there was a revolt that started with God raising up the mighty warrior Jeroboam, yet Solomon's son Rehoboam wouldn't have it and wouldn't concede to the request for less harsh treatment. Some biblical scholars say he seemed to enjoy creating suffering and oppression. So the 10 tribes went to the north and they became the nation of Israel and it split. So there was the northern and the southern kingdoms. However, Jeroboam didn't use his leadership to return the 10 tribes of Israel to the Lord, but set up false gods and false systems of worship, which never changed through all the descendants of the northern kingdom. So biblical scholars consider all the northern kingdom kings as evil or having hearts that did not serve the Lord and the southern kingdom only had eight out of about 20, but only eight were mostly God-fearing kings. And there was 20, they say kings, but also keep in mind one was like a grandmother. So we'll just say leaders. And we realize that the northern kingdom of Israel representing 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel are headed for captivity by the Assyrians. Their bloodlines and culture will mix into their new world and they will be generally known as the Sumerians by the time we arrive at the New Testament. So we really won't get to track the 10 tribes of Israel. But the southern kingdom, consisting of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, will be taken captive by the Babylonians. But God is keeping faithful to the covenant he made with David to always keep a lamp before him, which is God, in Jerusalem. So we know this line leads to Jesus in the New Testament. And in this specific story, we read about that wealthy woman again who used her blessing to bless Elisha. And she gave him, remember her and her husband gave him a bed and food and a place to stay when he was there. And he used his place, Elisha did, to intercede to God on her behalf for a child and to revive that child when the child became ill. In the story, she had been advised to flee because of the famine and upon her return, her lands were being restored to her. Then we read this odd story about the king of Aram seeking the truth from the prophet Elisha about the terminality of his illness, and the king sent his messenger, Haziel. Then, in this twist of fate, Elisha explains that the king will not die by illness, but as by an assassin. Haziel is that assassin. So God knows the heart of man. Not sure if this was a message from God to Haziel to be the assassin, or if this was simply a message about what Haziel was already planning to do for his own reasons. Then we switch to the southern kingdom and read about the military weakening of their power as the kingship is passed down from the evil king Jehoram to the evil king Ahaziah, his son, both considered to be terribly corrupt in the chapter that we read today. 
Then, transitioning to the story of the prophet of Hosea, with introspection on his own marriage to the adulterous wife of his, Gomer, who will be unfaithful and have children. Marty Solomon describes how this is written as prophetic theater to teach an important lesson to paint a picture of what God was doing with Israel. Whether it's real or not, he isn't sure that's the point. Father Mike Schmitz and Dr. Mackey helps us back up and consider what we're reading in Hosea and the other prophets, sometimes referred to as the minor prophets. One important aspect of the ancient Hebrew Bible is that the 12 minor prophets' work of Hosea through Malachi where the Protestant Old Testament ends, they were designed as a single book called The Twelve. Hosea is the first book of The Twelve. Note, the word minor doesn't mean they were less important, but they were just smaller works and grouped together in the Hebrew Bible, whereas the five prophets books were longer and therefore were referred to as the major prophets. And those will include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Another thing to keep in mind is that prophets were not male sorcerers. They did not predict the future on their own. Remember, the Hebrew word prophet was introduced to us back in Exodus, and the Hebrew word prophet had to do with being a messenger of God. It sometimes had to deal with what was next or the next course of action, but a prophet was always speaking in a specific context. And I think it's important to remember these things as we try and understand the meaning. So the prophet Hosea And soon we'll also read about Amos. They were both prophets speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes referred to as Ephraim or Jacob. Remember, all the northern kings were unfaithful themselves and led God's people astray. So that's who they're talking to. So in Hosea, we are reading, if you keep on doing these things, God is going to let you go. I read it less like if then, uh, for example, more like God says, if you do this, then I'm going to do this to you. But it's more like God is honoring that portion of power and authority he gave you, me, specifically as a blessing with agency. So these people, like we can, choose to represent ourselves or other gods instead of Yahweh. And God will give them over to their desires. And there are consequences. I see them like gravity to that because any choice that isn't God is not leading to life but a version of darkness that leads to death. It's not saying God doesn't love them. It reads to me like he is jealous, hurt, and angry, but so in love, he will let them go because that is what they want. He doesn't want it because he loves them and because he knows they will suffer and be oppressed without him. He doesn't want this outcome, but the choice he gives to them. We also note that time is finite. No choice is not an option. We either choose him or not. Yet God is even still saying, reaching out, I will pursue, I will redeem. And he's saying to them in this story, you will return to me. So there's this glimmer of hope. Marty Solomon points out this very important link between idolatry and adultery. Idolatry isn't just about picking the right God and the right answer or the right form of worship, but the main concern is mercy over sacrifice. The emphasis of Hosea is mercy despite prostitution. Knowing God is to know his mercy and be in right relationship and remembering our role as a kingdom of priests, loving and living in mercy. Marty Solomon reiterates because Jesus points back to this part of the story, the leaders must remember the temple is a place of mercy. 
The sacrifice is about facilitating mercy. It's not about the sacrifice itself, but the mercy it represents. Sacrifice on its own seems like an action for a result, a transaction. And God is about transformation, a transformative relationship that he set into motion and called us into because of his grace and mercy. So the point seems to be, Remember not to commit adultery with other gods or buy into empire or otherworldly narratives, but commit to my, God's narrative, and remember the plot, his story, being his vice regents, his faithful spouse, so that together, empowered and called by him, we can be a part of the restoration and redemption project he's all about since the beginning of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve morally defected, which is all about mercy and putting the world back together, and that we're not to lose the plot or become part of the anti-story. There's a yearning and an angst in the story of Hosea that I think we might all feel in our daily lives. The tension and my prayers that we remember, the kind of relationship God wants to remember, the plot, the story, and not be persuaded or dissuaded by other narratives. The story is about God's faithfulness, not ours. We will experience him, remember Yada. He betrothed us in compassion and our choice, no matter our past or how adulterous our heart has been. It's His grace, His mercy that's reaching out to us and our response, Shema. I think in our world, we want to make the right decisions to begin with. And if or when we don't make the right decisions, we want to, what? Either justify it, ignore it, or fix it. And these just aren't possible with the Lord. He's asking for us to experience Him, be in relationship in the right story with Him, and in response, Shema. Remember, that's to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, and mind. We're ready, and we're in it when we're ready to do that. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.